Good morning. Thank you very much. I think you know how much I enjoy being here, and I hope you know that I do not take it for granted that I would be invited to come here, and I hope that I speak as though it may be the last time I am ever here, and therefore that I would have um, a sense of urgency about what I do insofar as our lives are expendable. We are like a vapor that appears for just a short while and then vanishes away. We are dying men and women. And uh, it's an awesome thought that God would preserve our lives to this day and give us the opportunity of serving Him. Thank you so much for many of your kind comments. And uh, it's, it's always a privilege to meet you and uh, to hear from you. And I hope that God will continue the association that He's given us over many years and that we might always be a help and not a hindrance to each other. I was speaking at Cedarville College a few weeks ago, and that's in Ohio, and uh, the president just received a fax as I was there, and um, he immediately had it photocopied and gave it to me, and it was a dramatic story. I wanted to share it with you because I want to ask you to pray in a moment or two. Uh, A young man had come from Australia to uh, study at Cedarville College. He'd been contacted by the Extension Ministry of Cedarville down in Australia. Uh, He'd been married in the 60s. They were essentially sort of Australian hippies, he and his wife. They'd had uh, a couple of children, and his wife just uh, uh, went crazy on him and uh, left him and uh, went into a life of sin and was... And set up in an apartment and living in uh, various places with various guys. The fellow never gave up on her. He had come away to school. He had tried his best at reconciliation. Nothing was happened. He was being counseled by many people. After all, she was the guilty party. There was every reason for him biblically to be able to at least uh, let her go and so on. He never felt that he could do that. And uh, uh, a few years ago now, at uh, a prayer day at Cedarville College, the pastor of the college had felt it incumbent upon him to expressly ask the students for the totality of the day to pray for this lady in Australia. And so they had done. On Thanksgiving, that same year, this Australian man had been invited to somewhere in the south to spend time with a family And he received a telephone call from his estranged wife of seven years to say that she had come to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. And was he at all prepared to take her back? When they traced the deep sense of conviction of sin which came upon her, They traced it, as you would guess, to the day of prayer at Cedarville College in Ohio, 12,000 miles away from Australia. The facts came on the day that I was in Cedarville, which was some anniversary in the proceedings. The man is a Baptist minister now in Australia. They have two further children. Their older girl is is a medical student en route to the mission field. Their second daughter is a committed Christian, and their wee boys are infants in the faith. A tremendous story of God's intervention and faithfulness when we're prepared to trust God 
and to recognize that he is able to take the years that the locusts have eaten, he's able to take something that is uh, potentially ugly and disastrous and bring it out for good. It was on my mind this morning because already today I've had occasion to be in communication with friends in Scotland, not at the expense of the college, but I have had this morning to be calling to, to Britain. When I went as a pastor in 1975 to Hamilton Baptist Church, I was 25 years old, and uh, one of the one of the uh, great joys for me then was to see the lovely group of uh, teenagers that God had brought together in the church. And there were some significant bright lights there, and none more so than a young guy called Russell, who was uh, talented in sports. He was exceptionally talented in music. He was a very able communicator. He was just one of these young men that you knew would um, go somewhere. And... Uh, I had the privilege of marrying him to his wife, uh, Moira. I had the awesome responsibility of sharing with them when, having become the recipients uh, of uh, twin boys, Mark and Christopher, one Saturday morning. Christopher, at about six weeks of age, uh, had died in a cot death. Uh, I had watched as uh, the wee boy then grew, Mark, and then as God gave them... uh, Susie, a little girl, and then another beautiful little girl with piercing blue eyes, Emma. I watched as he went from being a teller in a bank to being a salesman in an insurance company. I watched as he became the head of the sales team in Glasgow, became the head of the sales team in Scotland, became the head of the sales team for the complete corporation. When I was with him playing golf a year ago, He told me that he'd been witnessing to a girl in his office. I said, I don't think it's a good plan for you to be witnessing to girls in your office. Well, I thought we're supposed to witness, he said. Yeah, you are supposed to witness, but don't witness to girls. I said, is she cute? He said, I said, yeah, she is. I know she is. He said, yeah, she is. I said, well, quit witnessing to her. Get a girl to witness to her. No, well, he didn't think that was good advice. I told him on that occasion that I'd take a three-wood, a ping three-wood actually, and I would beat him round the side of his head if he ever violated his marriage vows. And I said, the reason I can say that with confidence is because I want you to determine that you'll do the same for me. It's a kind of, it's not a very biblical thing, but it's, it's, it, 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 it holds a great threat. It holds a great threat. And... Uh, I sent a letter, I I phoned his wife uh, to get uh, a certain kind of antiseptic cream which was needed for somebody who had had radiation therapy. It's a long and strange, circuitous story. And in the course of making this uh, inconsequential telephone call to say, could you please go to such and such a drugstore and ship this to me, it came out that um, my friend, was emotionally involved with this girl that I told him was not a good plan. And for the last uh, two and a half months or so, he has rebutted all my endeavors to call him to account. And as recently as this morning, uh, my wife had a telephone call from his wife to say that he is planning to sell their home. He's planning to uh, break up their family. He's planning to move into an apartment on his own. And at the same time, he is continuing to lead worship in his local church. 
to sing in evangelistic missions and he flat out refuses to believe that there's anything wrong at all. Now, I've asked my friends in Ohio if they would pray. I'm asking those of you who pray if you would pray. This is all you need to pray. God, bring Russell to his senses and restore him to his wife and his kids for your glory. If God has given you any kind of prayer ministry at all, maybe you would pray that way. Maybe we will live to see the same kind of restoration in a world that accepts and acquiesces to failure far too fast. Let's pray together. And then I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Hope you don't mind me sharing that with you, but I have a heavy heart this morning. There's nothing funny this morning that I can find to think about. I'm just absolutely broken up when I think of this, this young couple. Gracious God and loving Father, you, by your Spirit, are the inspirer and the hearer of our prayers. You are the one that says, cast your burden upon the Lord, that he will sustain you. You are the one who restores even the years that the locusts have eaten. You are the one who looked into the teary gaze of Peter in his failure, made a breakfast for him on the beach, and reestablished him in ministry. We look to you. We pray that you will put a hedge around our lives that we might walk in the path of obedience for your namesake. We pray this morning for Russell, that you will make him miserable in his rebellion, that you will show him an end of himself, that you will bring him, Lord, to his senses, and that if it please you, that we might live to hear and see the answers to our prayers. For Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to go at these very familiar verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is about 800 years before Jesus Christ. That is the section that we're reading. The immediate historical background to it you can find in Second Chronicles, 
and chapter 26. You may even like to turn there for a moment so that you can discern that what I'm saying is actually factual. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we have the story of the demise of this man Uzziah. You will see there that it says in the first verse of Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. There must be some reason as to why Isaiah identifies the thing, pinpoints it with this kind of historical accuracy. He's not just uh, padding it. It's not like one of our papers for a professor. There's nothing in that should be out. There's nothing uh, left out that should be in. Therefore, it's vitally important that he identifies the context in which this theophany took place by means of this historic pinpoint in the year that King Uzziah died. When you read chapter 26, you will notice that in verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. A young man given a position of unique responsibility, which he had sustained, according to verse 3, for 52 years. On the strength of verse 4, we know that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we know at the end of verse 5 that as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. And some of that success is then described. But in the 16th verse, we read these words. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. In the King James Version, it says that he was gloriously helped until he became strong. And when he became strong... He grew proud to his own destruction. The devil, as he attacks us, as we seek to follow hard after Christ, it seems to me has mainly two strings on his guitar. The rest are broken. String one is the inflation string, if you like, if I may mix my metaphors, whereby he seeks to expand our heads to such a degree that we won't be able to go in and outdoors effectively. And eventually we'll just just go. We're just useless. And so he tries to make us a fat head, recognizing that the man to whom God looks is he who is humble and contrite in spirit, or else he tries so to squeeze our heads and to discourage us and to defeat us and to get us focusing on failure in the past that he neutralizes us for the future. Now, in, his, in Uzziah's case, it was the former. He had been blessed beyond measure. He had received so much. He was a marked man in many ways, and he overstepped the mark. And the rest of 2 Chronicles 26 outlines the way in which he overstepped the mark <coughs> insofar as he glorified himself rather than God. He contracted leprosy, and he died as an outcast. And so the stability and security of the nation over the past 52 years was now obliterated. Leadership had crumbled. It was leadership in crisis. And in that great crisis of leadership societally, Isaiah, the man of God, gains a fresh sight of God in all of his glory. We might argue that in a world of crumbling leadership structures, men and women of God need to be brought, as it were, into the framework whereby we have this same kind of encounter. What do we find before us here in these verses? Four things. 
Number one, I saw the Lord. Or if you like, he had a sight of Christ. What we have here is, I believe, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. It is a theophany. God has manifested himself finally and fully in Christ. And at a time when a kingdom had risen and then the kingdom had crumbled, Uzziah has gone, Isaiah is there, God has purposes for him, and God determines that it is essential for Isaiah, the servant of God, to have this kind of encounter, to have a sight of Christ. I saw the Lord, he says, and he was seated on a throne. Perhaps one of the greatest needs in each of our lives at this time is for us to have a fresh, as it were, encounter with the living God. The society in which we live has built its own gods, all with a small g. And behind a facade of wisdom, our leadership has become foolish. We ought not to be surprised at that, for unregenerate men will live manifesting the emptiness of sin. When we walk around our proud cities and look at them, we're tempted to believe that we're really quite remarkable. And then suddenly the earth moves and our proud creations crumble. And we realize that we're not in control of very much at all. When we look at the steel constructions and the skyscrapers and the things that we've built to be able to travel through time and space, we're tempted to believe that we're really very wonderful. And then we take a walk in the woods or we walk in the park and we understand why it is that fishermen and shepherds have always had a far greater God consciousness. For when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou should visit him? It's good to stand out on these clear nights, young people. And look up into this vast panorama of this California sky and remind yourself how tiny you are before you go to bed. When you've been at your most effective in ministry, gaze up into the heavens before you go to bed and say it is a remarkable thing that the creator of the universe would reveal himself to me and how I need to see him. How I need to encounter him afresh. How I need to see Christ. It's that great song that Phil Webb sings. It still sends chills up my back. I play it in my car when I'm going to speak at meetings. You know this song he sings, I want to know Christ. And it's like, whoa, yeah, that's right, Phil. Gets me so pumped up. I didn't play it this morning. That's why I'm a bit subdued just now. But it's so tremendous. And that's what happened to him there. He saw the Lord. What was the place in which he saw him? Seated on a throne. On a throne. He is God Almighty. He is not our buddy. He is the Almighty God. Beware your flippant tongue. Beware mine also. When we find that we are encountering God in His magnitude, we see Him in the place of exaltation. Revelation is replete with it. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He who conquers, I will give to sit with me, He says, upon my throne. 
Yes, he took upon himself the form of a servant, as was described in the reading that we had, in order to manifest and to come into our time-space capsule to redeem us. But he sits enthroned in heaven. The highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign rights. And we have not seen Christ until we have encountered him in the place of his appointing. And so he understood the place. He understood his presence. We're told here that his train filled the temple. The train of his robe. It's a, it's a picture of the, the, the way in which the glory and aura of God impinged upon all that was in that place. He understood his person. For these seraphim were crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Reginald Heber, building this beautiful house overlooking the river Wharf in Ilkley in Yorkshire, being driven in his carriage to the prosperous, uh, powerful place of prestige in Bradford as a wealthy mill owner, being magnified by the townspeople as they said, there goes the great Reginald Heber, And there he goes to that beautiful place underneath the waterfall that is named after him Heber's Gill. And there he sits in all of his great prestige and power. And I can imagine Heber getting up one morning and looking out over this wonderful scene over the Wharf River Valley and saying to himself, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Early in the morning, my song will rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You see, the real key to Heber's life was not that he owned a mill, not that he was a multi-millionaire, Not that he had a position of great grandeur in the community, but that he had seen Christ on his throne. And from that throne, Christ had met with Heber. And he discovered that his power was unlimited. The whole earth is full of his glory. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is utter foolishness. Take a baby in your arms and look at those tiny wee toenails. Ponder the amazing ability of the human mind to process information. Look at that lady with the chimpanzees on national public TV all the time. As she... she, fiddles around with these chimpanzees and tries to explain to us this great evolutionary hypothesis. God made the chimpanzees as a joke. He made these things like this 
so that we would look and say, that's what we would blooming well be like were it not for the fact that he made us man and gave us a never-dying soul. We didn't come from that junk. Those things are just there. As I kinda, it's just for fun. It's just for circuses and things. It's nothing else. I used to visit an elderly missionary, 93 years old when he died. His name was Dr. Leckler. He was a medical missionary. He was snared by bandits in China. He had served with a China Inland Mission. He'd served with the Church Missionary Society. By the time I had the privilege of visiting him as a young minister in Edinburgh, he was in a, he was in a, a private hotel cared for by a, by a beneficent couple. And, and every afternoon that I would go and see him, I didn't go and see him every afternoon, but on the occasions that I went to see him, which was with frequency, he would always be in the same place, and he always wore a little waistcoat, the kind of thing I had on last night that I threw on the floor. You call it a vest. A vest is something you wear under your shirt. You call it a T-shirt, but that is for another occasion. And in his, and in his waistcoat with a little pocket here, he always had a New Testament with a Psalms in it. I have this on my shelves now in, in Ohio, and I pick it up and read it, and it's got all his little notes stuck in it and everything else. But this is what he always used to say. He always used to say to me, Alistair, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works towards the children of men. You see, his life began with God and his glory, not with Dr. Lechler and his need. A sight of Christ. Secondly, a sense of confession. I saw the Lord. I cried, I am ruined, verse 5, for I am a man of unclean lips. He entered the temple conscious of Uzziah's sin. Conscious of Uzziah's foolishness and departure from the Lord. And now he says to himself, here is me thinking that Uzziah is the one with a problem. But when I encounter your holiness, then I am forced to say, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. The reason that I know this is, is because my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. You remember when the disciples encountered Christ in all of His glory when they're fishing and they're making a real hash of it. And Jesus intervenes. And despite the fact that they're not too keen on the suggestions that he gives, they go with him. And he manifests his power in this simple way. And what's the response? The response is to fall down on the deck of the boat and to cry out, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, if you've fallen into the trap of thinking that uh, to encounter Christ is, is to make you a joker and a smart, funny chap and to make you slick and cool and all these other things. That I want to say to you reverently this morning, you've never seen Christ. Do you know the time we ought to be most concerned? It's when we can start the morning worship hour singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and be at the last line of the second verse, and never have registered one single thing that we have just mouthed. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, 
My riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. My children have every right to see that in my lifestyle. You have every right to travel with me on the plane or come to my hotel room and see if it's true. For the closer we live to the light, the more we become aware of the impurity. Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, I do. I don't know how you teach it here, but I'm going to tell you how I teach it. That was not Paul's pre-converted experience. Nobody in their pre-converted experience says, I delight in the law of God. They don't. They hate it. They rebel against it. And what he is saying is this. The more I walk with Christ, the more I know Him, the more I see Him, the more I realize that I qualify as the chief of sinners, that I am a wretched man. The trouble with some of us is we're so busy pointing out the sin of Uzziah that we don't see the sin in our own lives. He said, I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Search me, O God, says the psalmist, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be some wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is not a chronicle of despair. This is a testimony of realism. This is basic biblical Christianity. Wasn't that great last night, that wonderful song that we had played in the piano by Brian, was it? I've had that song played lots of times. It's usually played by ladies and kind of genteel. And that's okay. Usually ladies from the soccer team, I think. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> But when he played it last night, it had a bit of gut to it, you know, it had a bit of something in it. I like that. When I came down on the bottom end, I was saying to myself, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's what was happening to Isaiah. That's what needs to happen to me. That, I suggest humbly, is what needs to happen to a number of you. A sight of Christ. A sense of confession. Thirdly, a seal of cleansing. Verse 7. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth. And he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away, and your sin has been atoned for. A burning coal from where? From the altar. The significance lies in the fact that the altar was the place of sacrifice and the place of atonement. Before the death of Christ on the cross, which was to materialize in the great fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated, the high priest offered a lamb there. And out of that offering up for sin, the seraph flies and takes a coal symbolic of the cleansing and the paying of the price for sin and brings it to Isaiah and touches his lips. His lips! If you've ever burned yourself with your fingers or your knees or your shins or whatever else it is, 
That's wretched. But to have a burning coal on the lips, it's got to be really central, really significant, really vital. That's what Jesus does. He comes to us at our place of greatest need, and he touches us there. I love this, because with God, failure is never final. After my Bible, I like Pilgrim's Progress the best of all, because I've been in Bypath Meadow. I've spent time in Doubter's Castle. I've met Apollyon. I've hung around with Pliable and Obstinate. And there have been occasions in my life when their allure and their temptation seemed so strong that it seemed like maybe a good idea to chuck it and to go back because after all, the slough of despond is nowhere to spend the rest of your life. You remember the words of Pliable to Pilgrim. He says, you never told me that it would be like this. So he says, I'm not going any further with you, Pilgrim. And Bunyan recounts how he gets out of the slough on the side closest to his own house and he goes home. And Pilgrim gets out of the slough closest to the journey that is to continue and goes forward. I was saying to somebody last night, the Christian life is not 600-yard dashes intermittently uh, with, uh, uh, stuck in between periods of chronic inertia. It's a cross-country run for the rest of your life. What do you do? You get, you get things in the shins. You get brambles in the elbows. You get branches in the eyes. But you've got a goal towards which you're heading. And God comes to touch us where we need touched. Somebody here this morning, and you need your lips touched. Because out of your lips, as James says, comes blessing and cursing. And James says, Can a spring... Bring both fresh water and salt water. Mm -mm. So can it be that out of the same mouth we come blessing and cursing? It cannot be. It mustn't be. Somebody here this morning, you need your lips touched because you're a slanderer. You just are. I've told you this little poem before, but I like it so much I'm going to tell you it again. If all that we say in a single day, remember this? With never a word left out, were printed each night, in clear black and white, it would make strange reading, no doubt. And then just suppose ere our eyes should close, we must read the whole record through. Then wouldn't we try, wouldn't we sigh, and wouldn't we try a great deal less talking to do? And I more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if half what we say in a single day were to be left forever unsaid. The greatest trouble in 90% of our churches come on the strength of this little piece of membrane. I don't know what it weighs, probably about six ounces in the average person, although I never weighed a tongue. That's a guess. It's put between the teeth so that you can swallow and do a bunch of other stuff, and it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I don't know what Isaiah's problem was, but you know, when God makes a man a prophet, it's usually because he wants to use his voice. And when you live as some of us do, using our voice all the time. Sometimes our voice then can be the greatest vehicle for good and also the greatest problem we ever have because we won't shut up. When I was a wee boy in Scotland, we used to finish the Sunday school regularly. On a Sunday morning, we were asked to bow our heads and close our eyes. And then we sang this chorus and went like this. 
And I sing this chorus regularly. I'm not sure I sing it every day, but I definitely sing it every week. This is how it goes. Cleanse me from my sin, Lord. Put thy power within, Lord. Take me as I am, Lord, and make me all your own. Keep me day by day, Lord, underneath your sway, Lord. Make my heart your palace and your royal throne. I learned it when I was six. I've been singing it for 35 years. It's not an illustration pulled up from somewhere. It's absolutely true. Why do I sing it? Because I know I need to sing it. A sight of Christ, a sense of confession, a seal of cleansing, and finally, a sincere commitment. I saw the Lord, a sight of Christ. Woe is me, for I am lost, a sense of confession. He touched my mouth, a seal of cleansing. Here am I, send me a sincere commitment. You'll notice that he then heard the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord was asking the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And today, February the 9th, 1994, God looks from heaven onto a group like this. He brings us to see His glory. In seeing His glory, He brings us to see ourselves, to get realistic about who we are. He comes to touch us at our point of need, and He comes to ask us the self-same question. Whom shall I send, and who will go? It's a kind of traditional missionary message. I've been brought up in these all my life. You usually finish the service by singing, So send I you. That's how it goes. We can't sing that this morning. There's no hymn books. But if you know the hymn, and you probably don't, it says in one verse, So send I you to suffer unrewarded, to die to dear desires, self-will resign, to labor long where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. Not so send I you on a three-month project with a, with a return ticket. So send I you to lose your life in mine. You prepare to go and bury yourself in some remote part of the world to translate the Scriptures into a dialect as yet unknown because you believe that as a result of that work, the Word of God will become alive in the life of someone else? Or do you just want to be a Christian superstar? Do you just want to be known? You see, we have to fight that battle every day. Who will go? Who will go? Dwight L. Moody on one occasion heard somebody say the world is yet to see what God can do with a man whose life is wholly yielded to him. And D.L. Moody said, I'm going to be that man. There was a little man who used to come to our Sunday school. I guess this is the Sunday school morning, but so be it. I, my mind is full of Sunday schools. And uh, 
His name was George Iron Stewart. The strange middle name. The last time he ever came to our Sunday school, he came in his slippers. The reason I know that is because we picked him up and we brought him from his house. And I can remember him walking out like this in his slippers. And I'm thinking as a young boy to myself, you know, why, why, why do we bring an old man like this to our Sunday school? We brought him to the Sunday school. He gave a little talk. God had truly blessed this man with an amazing ability to speak to kids. And he used to play a little organ with these things, you know. And I never forget, this is how, this is how his thing ended. He taught as a chorus. This is how it went. He plushed those little things in his little white hair and his, he had wire rims and his slippers. Okay? He wasn't flash. He wasn't funny. He didn't know anything about sports. He hadn't, he hadn't listened to an album in his life. They weren't even invented. And here he was. He was totally useless. You'd never decide to bring him to anything unless the hand of God rested on him, which it did. And this is what he played. This is how the chorus went. He taught us to sing it. Lord, send me. Here am I. Send me. I want to be greatly used of thee. Across the street or across the sea, here am I. O Lord, send me. And the only reason that I have the immense privilege, I believe, of being uprooted from my father's house and everything that represents security to me and stand before you here this morning, I can only explain it in terms that God, when he hears that honest response from the life of insignificant individuals such as I, he is prepared to take us at our word. Dream big dreams. Give up your small ambitions. Respond to the prompting in your heart today. Answer, Lord, if you can use the likes of me, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I have to give up my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my background, my front ground, any ground. I'm going. To every man that openeth a way and a ways and a way, and the high soul treads the high road, and the low soul gropes the low, and in between on the misty flats the rest drift to and fro. Don't live your lives on the misty flats. Evangelical Christianity has been camping there too long. It's time to move on and move up. Let's pray together. When I was going through my notes, I came across something that bears the date June 8th, 1975. I obviously took this from somewhere and wrote it down and uh, now some 19 years later I, I came across it again I haven't, I don't, I haven't seen this in, in so long I want to use this as a prayer for you if you would make this your prayer I'm going to read it say Amen and then hand things back over I don't want you to applaud I, I'm going to assume that you're thankful that I came but um, please just let's just think on these things. Make this your prayer along with me, would you? Dear Heavenly Father, though I am young in years, youth thou can use. Make thy demands on me. I'll not refuse. Take all there is of me, all that I hope to be. Thy way at last I see. 
thy way I choose. Nothing can I achieve, nothing attain. He that without thee builds labors in vain. Shatter my own design, shaping a plan divine. Come to this heart of mine, Savior, again. Amen.